Fred's really larger than life, you see. I don't think I'm a kind of Meryl Streep type actor, you know, who can make people weep just by raising an eyebrow that much. You know, you know me, I prat about. But that's why it's good for me. That's why I seized on the ideas, because Fred's imaginary, so he can just be anything, and he can be over the top and loud and stupid and childish. Uh, and that, so that means that I can be me and, and, and hopefully not make a uh, mistake. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not The Bomb Podcast. This is the show where we go back and talk about movies that bomb theatrically, or maybe the, the critics just didn't like upon release. Brad, uh, episode 149, I believe. Correct. I, okay. Yeah, we're getting Good up Good job there. nailing that intro the first time too, buddy. I know. Well, we've been doing it for 140 Flawless. plus episodes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's a little behind the scenes joke. I, I flubbed <laughs> it up like two or three times, but here we are. We got it down. It only took like four takes. Uh, your pick, Brad. What what are we discussing tonight? Oh boy, I picked the comedy film, com- comedy in quotes, uh, from two thousand and or from I'm sorry, two thousand one, nineteen ninety one, Drop Dead Fred. Okay, uh, <laughs> I'm assuming you didn't see this when it uh, debuted theatrically, correct? I, I did not. I did not. Um, I have seen bits and pieces of Drop Dead Fred my whole entire life, especially like around 95, 96, I believe it was on HBO. It felt like all the time, but I think this might've been the first time I watched it all the way through. Okay. Well, th- this is one that continuously comes up in a lot of emails and suggestions. It has a bit of a cult following uh, so much so that I think it's vinegar syndrome had put out a special edition Blu-ray with a ton of features. I mean, they, it was packed, which I gotta be honest with you. That floored me. Um, that that this thing got the special features treatment, but we'll we'll talk about that in detail. Uh, t- to tackle this, I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's it's just it's a weird movie. Um, we thought we would bring an expert in this type of um, cross pollination of genres, and it's our good friend from the fantastic show Watch Skip Plus, Justin. How are you this evening? I am doing very well, and I am very excited to talk about this. Weird is the best way to describe this movie. We'll get there. Okay. Is this a Just in the Red episode, or would this be a Cinemasticus episode? So, believe it or not, this would be a Just in the Red, because I grew up loving this movie somehow, which maybe explains the Cinemasticus part of me. But we'll get there. We have some, uh, maybe this will be, instead of Breaking Brad, this is going to be some psychological study on me. <laughs> Okay, I I can't I cannot wait to get into our thoughts on this one. Um, full disclosure, I hated this thing when I first saw it. Hate, and I saw it in the theaters. And uh, if if we were taking a poll at at the time when this released, I'm not saying it was skin of a rink level of hatred, <laughs> but I walked out of the theater on this one um, just super disappointed. We'll we'll talk about Did that. Did you later. see it solely because of Phoebe Cates? No, uh, Rick Mile. 
Oh, okay. From you were the young, young ones, ones fan, right? Yes, because okay. the young ones, uh, if if you were my generation and you watched MTV, the young ones was just uh, your your punk rock sitcom that you absolutely fell in love with. So you could watch mi- music videos, and then late at night you'd catch episodes of, of the young ones. And man, I've I've seen those episodes. I don't know how many times. I'm getting ahead of myself because we're talking about some people that are involved in the film. Brad, I want to start with you and talk about the box office results when this thing came out. So. It has an interesting release, and it went up with some very interesting competition. But I thought we'd we'd dissect this a little bit, uh, talk about some of the people who made it, and then and then see if we can figure out why it bombed. But let's start with you. Yeah. So release May twenty fourth of nineteen ninety one. We have done many a film that released in May of two thousand nineteen ninety one. We will get there with a reported budget of around six point seven million dollars. Um, it gets its total box office return is $13.8 million. Um, probably breaks even ish. Um, if you want to say, you know, people make movies to break even, um, that would be a bad business model to have, um, opening weekend, Troy, it comes in sixth place and it makes three, $3.625 million. And it gets beat by some films like backdraft. What about Bob? Previous episode, Hudson Hawk, mm-hmm. Thumb on Louise, and Only the Lonely. And then we have Drop Dead Fred at number six. I will say 12th that weekend was maybe the greatest film ever released, Stone Cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 91 is our year for some reason. Uh, we've been talking a lot of, a lot of stuff from there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is the year I was born, so I just want to say that's why it was a graceful year. <laughs> great year. Great year. Oh, my God. Um, you're so young. <laughs> I know. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> Troy and Brad. Sorry, sorry. Tell myself. Okay. Uh, now that I wait, I look at my AARP card while I'm doing this. Uh, anyway, uh, breaking even. Sure, we can say probably sort of a bomb there, but critically, Drop Dead Fred sits at an 11 percent with the critics and a 77 percent with the audience. The audience is seven times higher than the critics. That is crazy to me. Crazy. And that's with over like a hundred thousand reviews. Um, so yeah, not even close. Um, okay. So there is a movie guide review on this, but Troy and I have a little special treat later on. So we will, we will get to that later. We don't need the Christians to tell us that there's pagan worldviews in this film. Yeah. We've kind of figured um, that out. I, I think every time we pull the review from that website, we're a, we're getting terrible grammar and B, how many times can you say pagan worldviews, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everything's pagan worldviews if you're not praising the Lord. Okay. And films you could have seen May of 1991. Again, we've done a lot of these. We have One Good Cop, A Rage in Harlem, uh, FX2, Madonna Truth or Dare, Switch, uh, <laughs> Mannequin on the Move, Stone Cold, What About Bob, Backdraft. A little film, I i don't know if I've ever mentioned this one, but I love the title, Hanging with the Homeboys. <laughs> okay. uh, Hudson Hawk. I don't think I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, Only the Lonely, Thelma and Louise. Um, and then rounding out that month was Soap Dish. Okay. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the folks that were involved in making this film. So traditionally, we would go behind the camera, in front of the camera, Brad and I are trying to mix it up a little bit. We thought we'd concentrate on maybe 
the folks that may may have had the highest uh, profile that were attached to the film. So you can go on IMDb, Wikipedia, wherever, and you can see everything uh, in, from the cinematographer, who wrote the screenplay, director, etc. I just want to mention a few names and talk about it. First of all, is the director uh, Ot de Jong uh, or or Jong. So he's a he's a Dutch director, writer, and producer. The thing to keep in mind here is in terms of American product or what he was working on around this time period, he had one episode of Miami Vice, the television show in 87. And then the year that Drop Dead Fred came out in 1991, he worked on, um, I guess it'd be a horror comedy, either limited theatrical release, uh, straight to video, Highway to Hell. So not not a lot of work. Um, Anyone seen Highway to Hell? Man. A long time ago, I don't remember much about it. It Ben Stiller's in it, I believe. Really? Yeah, he's like the cook, isn't he? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh, not much to talk about outside of that in terms of behind the camera, but I, I think where our conversation is going to gravitate to really comes to two people. So I, I think when we talk about this film, you're talking about the cast more so than the people behind the camera. So I want to start with Phoebe Cates. So she... I think uh, is one of those actresses that you, as soon as you hear a name, you automatically associate her with some mega hits in the eighties. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Yes. And probably one scene for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if, if you go down that rabbit hole, yes. Fast times at Ridgemont high probably has the most replayed sequence in VHS history, but I mean, gremlins in 84, um, Bright Lights, Big City in 88. She also did, and, and going into the 90s, she was working on A Levy to Death, Gremlins 2. Those were both the same year, 1990. Drop Dead Fred was one of the, it's later in her career. And what I mean by that is after 1994, she decided, because she's married to actor Kevin Klein, she had decided to kind of concentrate on her family and leave the industry more or less. She worked on a couple of projects after that, nothing big. Um, I think her latest credit might have been for a video game voice, 2005's Lego Dimensions. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to start with you, Justin. I mean, Phoebe Cates a, as an actress. Now, again, you've, you've only got a limited filmography, probably mm -hmm. from 80s to 90s. Um, what are your thoughts on her? Uh, yeah, I've always gravitated towards her. So if memory serves correctly, this movie is actually my introduction to her as a kid. But Gremlins would have been the one that I went to just as much, if not more so. And it's what I think of her when I think of Phoebe Cates. I knew of Fast Times at Ridgemount High just because my parents would sometimes reference it. But by the time I got to it, like I still enjoyed the film and like that moment. But it's not like it was life changing because I was not a child of the 80s. So it was just something special. I did always find it weird that she did just disappear. And I didn't know for a while that was, you know, she just wanted to focus on family i thought it was this movie i really thought because I, I couldn't think of anything that she had done after this and that i would have been on my radar so i just thought well this thing didn't go well and then because sometimes that happens i mean what was her name from the uh american version of godzilla the role in emmerich in 98 i can't remember the actress's name but her career the the love interest of matthew broderick her film career kind of died after that movie. So I wasn't sure growing up, but that's always what the case was here. Uh, but no, I've always loved her. I think she has a nice warm personality to her that translates well to screen and it is turned on its head here. Okay. Wasn't it Maria, Maria something. Yeah. I can't remember the name. Yeah. I don't remember. 
Okay. And I'm not going to check. So whatever. Well, what about you, Brad? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on her? It was drop dead Fred. One of the reasons why you saw it, uh, was because of Phoebe Kate. Uh, yeah, you have definitely, I mean, I had seen, God, I saw the new batch probably 700 times growing up. It was one of the things I had. Um, I gravitated more to the second one of gremlins before the first one. I just always found it way more enjoyable and I feel kind of vindicated by how people think how ridiculous it is now. Um, fast times, like I was a little young, um, for that for a while. And then by the time I got around to see it, like that moment in, in, in history had, had passed, but I still think fast times is a great film. Um, but I wasn't like in the zeitgeist at the time, but I felt like the new batch and gremlins, like I had seen that. And, um, yeah, I think that Kate character is actually like really fun and, and, um, Yeah. I, I kind of miss her, but you know, good for her. She just like, Hey, I did some work and I'm done and I want to be a mother and good for her. So, yeah, I mean, she, she was getting roles and everything else. It wasn't a, an issue of, Hey, because of the films that she was making in the early nineties, there were, there were any issues. I mean, after drop dead Fred, she did bodies, rest in motion, princess caribou in 94. So stuff was still coming her way. She's actively made a choice said, Hey, I'm going to step out. And, uh, since then it's just concentrated solely on her family, which is really cool. Uh, yeah. And that, that body's rest in motion is, is pretty good. I liked it. Yeah. She's, I've always, I've always thought she was a, a fun actress. Um, I think she's got some range and versatility. I don't know if she's exactly a box office draw, although she is well known for things like the gremlin series, fast times at Ridgemont high, which is just an eighties icon. I mean, she is an eighties icon as a result of that film and gremlins. So that brings us to the other person that, uh, you know, we kind of got into it a little bit now that this is what attracted me to the film. As much as I was a fan of Phoebe Cates, I was more of a fan of Rick Mail because of the young ones, which only ran for a few years, 1982, 1984. And to be totally honest, um, that was really all I knew him from. I knew him from that. And I recognized him from a bit part in shock treatment, uh, which was the sequel to the Rocky Horror picture show that came out in 81. And I know a lot of people had talked about him as a comedian because he had starred in numerous successful comedy series throughout his career. Stuff like the young ones, the comic strip presents black adder, filthy rich and cat flap, the new Statesman bottom believe nothing. But, uh, honestly, that name for me really only carries weight because I, I think the young ones quite possibly is my favorite comedy television series. Oh, okay. Wow. I, I just, it has, it, it's so eighties, but it is More the kids in the hall. <laughs> I, I love the kids in the hall. I, yeah. I love Seinfeld. I mean, I, I, there are so many good series, but if you're talking about rewatchability, and um, something that feels like Monty Python, but even more fresh. The Young Ones is, has always, because, uh, you know, if you've never seen it, it, it's just so wacky and it's out there and it is so absurdist and it feels like punk rock entertainment. And then you get these music interludes that just, you know, all of a sudden these bands are playing in their living room. Um, the BBC or no, I, I think it's, uh, there, there's a Blu-ray edition that just came out end of last year. It's only region B, 
but it's got some amazing behind the scenes stuff on it. I was hoping that it would get released over here. I think the only way you can get like the U S version of the TV show is a DVD collection. But, um, you know, I'll start with you, Brad. I mean, have, are you, are you familiar with Rick's, uh, work or, I mean, was this the only thing you knew him from? I, I have known the young ones, but it came out, was it 82 to 84 and yeah. I was born in 83. And so when I was coming onto the scene with these sketch comedy groups and like absurdist comedy, I guess they also call them like alternative comedy. It would have been like the kids in the hall for me. Um, and then like my go-to comedy show growing up was like mystery science theater. Mm-hmm. And so I'd never got into the young ones. I've never gone back to watch it. I've never, and I guess with your your endorsement of it, I probably should. Um, I think I think you you'd really be, like it. I really I do. I think you can get it on iTunes. I think I'm sure you maybe. can digitally. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll have to check it out because I am into a lot of that stuff, um, especially when you bring up like Monty Python and and the such. But I never, I, I don't know. It just was the content is so much and so broad that it's hard to see everything. And the young ones is just something that has always kind of escaped me. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not like kids in the hall or Monty Python in terms of sketch comedy. I mean, Rick Mayo plays a character, Rick, who's this, uh, (laughs) just pretentious anarchist poet but you know, between um, those four characters in Is that, he play TV like series. a Johnny Rotten type. Yes, a bit. Okay, L- a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, Neil was one of my favorites. Vivian, my, I mean, it's all fantastic. Uh, and and you see a lot of new British comedy kind of coming out of the young ones. But it, it was a big deal for me because uh, our British listeners are salivating right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I know our our direct friend Mike Moore is a huge fan of the young ones too. So we've talked about it, but. Justin, you're you're the youngin mm-hmm. of the group. Do you do you even know what we're talking about? MTV at one point used to play music <laughs> videos. Uh, the and- only music videos that I knew of from MTV were when Beavis and Butthead were commenting on them. Uh, yeah, this so, is pre Beavis and Butthead, so yeah, we're talking so this, early '80s. At the time, growing up, like I, the only thing I would have known Rick one from was this uh the okay. only reason i even discovered to a degree like young ones and a lot of his british humor was as i got older and the internet became more accessible i was like remember that movie i always watched when i was a kid what that guy ever do because it was the only thing i ever saw him in and that's when i at least discovered how popular he was uh i was able to see some episodes of black adder and then once the dawn of youtube hit some skits or some scenes from like young ones would pop up I'm by no means an expert. It's somebody I've always been curious to go back because I've gotten into British comedy more nowadays and he gets referenced a lot. Uh, One, because one of the more famous comedians, Greg Davis does just look like his son so much to the point that they had Rick play his father on his sitcom man down, which makes sense. Okay. Um, But no, so I not enough to say I'm an expert. I am aware of his presence more than, knowing him on a personal level. Okay. Well, it, the movie poster for this really just concentrates on those two, um, actors, Phoebe Cates, Rick Mail. Uh, you've got Marsha Mason, Academy award winning, um, actress, uh, actually nominated, not winning. Excuse me. We got to get the details right here. <laughs> so she was nominated for only when I laugh chapter two, goodbye girl, Cinderella Liberty. You also get Tim Matheson, 
which we've talked about Tim Matheson before. He was a producer of 1989's Blind Fury. He's the reason why we got the American version oh, of right. Zatuichi. Yes, yeah. Yeah. He has like 191 acting credits. He's been all over the place. I just think of him as a the boyfriend in, in Fletch. Oh, okay. Yeah, see, I, I think of him in Fletch and then Animal House. Oh, yes. Uh, from Animal 78. House, yeah. Yep. And then Princess Leia herself, Carrie Fisher, uh, which is kind of interesting because around this time that she was working on this film – she had just done the screenplay for Postcards from the Edge in 1990, which was based on her book. And she was acting and doing some, you know, I, I guess, ghostwriting for other screenplays about this time period. So, I mean, really, the the notoriety or maybe the strength of this film is probably in front of the camera. Is that fair to say? Because if you look yes. at the screenwriters, I mean, Hurricane Heist, that's about it. <laughs> Yeah, Hurricane Heist. A <laughs> uh, couple things I want to bring up on the production and development that I think are kind of important. So, and and you know what? When I when I read this, it totally made sense after watching the film. Tim Burton and Robin Williams were offered the roles of director and Fred, respectively. They turned the project down. The much different film. Yes, to a degree. To a degree. Keep in mind, um, I think Tim Burton's filmmaking style might have had some influence within the circle at this time period. You could have seen like a Beetlejuice to Drop Dead Fred pretty A to B on that. Yeah, so yeah, I think so. And that's why I bring it up because Beetlejuice Mm -hmm. was what, 88? 88. Batman's 89. Uh, Edward Scissorhands Sizz- is 90. 90, yeah. And then Batman Returns is 92. So the reason why he's probably turning this down is because of those other properties, right? And um, I, it's really interesting. If, if you are, if you do like this film and you're a fan of it, so I know you're a fan of it, Justin, mm-hmm. you got to go pick up that Vinegar Syndrome because there are so many interviews with so many people who participated in this. And even Phoebe Cates, who you know really isn't participating in the industry, she does a, an interview that you'll find um, as a booklet within the Blu-ray. But it's kind of crazy because Rick Mayo um, specifically had worked so closely with the screenwriters and the director in creating this character and even the costume design and everything else that for American audiences, I don't think anybody knew him because Young Ones really was that underground cult TV show. And I think uh, they got this funded more because they got Phoebe Cates on board as an actress, but it is really interesting to go through and listen to all those interviews in the special features and kind of see the creation of it um, behind the scenes. And I I read that the director took some personal things that happened to him and why this film is kind of dark. It's based on sort of him being molested by his half brother from what I was reading. Um, yeah. Anyone else see that stuff about his trauma? And that's basically so what the, this is about. Yeah, the film screenplay was rewritten by director at the Jong and producer Paul Webster throughout pre-production. For the rewrites, DeJong took inspiration from being molested as a child by his older half-brother, stating, quote, The trauma of child abuse goes deep and its claws reach far in time. It was not something ever spoken about on the set, not with Rick or anyone, but for me it existed. So he mm. really took elements of the screenplay and incorporated in, and the, and the screenplay is a combination of you know two screenwriters plus based on a, a short story, 
Um, and, and Rick was attached to this from the get go. So this was kind of, this character is really built around him. So with that, uh, well, hold on, hold on. Yeah. It was also, uh, filmed in, in, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. So of course Prince is involved. They, they, uh, filmed it at Paisley park. Oh yeah. That's right. This is the only film, not a Prince film that was, uh, was filmed at Paisley Park. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, there were some rumors <laughs> and stuff that he stopped by the sets. He was going on. I think the director was like, I, I don't think I ever talked to him and um, don't know if he interacted with That's why I think the anybody. Vinegar Syndrome um, box art is purple. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> say, I want to know if Prince ever saw this and what he thought of it now. Well, I, I guess looking at the box office, looking at the time it came out, we haven't really gotten to our thoughts on the film does it make sense to you that this thing out of the gate bombed? Um, I mean, what are your guys' thoughts on it? Kind of. So I can see it because Rick Mayall, like you said, was not a box office draw at that point. Like, obviously, if they had Burton and Williams, this would have done much more business. It makes sense with, like you guys mentioned, Beetlejuice, and you definitely get those vibes. But even stuff like Problem Child were coming out around that time, and they were aimed at families, but they had this really weird, dark humor to them almost. That one's a little bit more family-friendly in its perverseness. So I can see why this came about at that time period, but I'm not surprised that it bombed, just especially considering it was coming out like right near Memorial day where I don't know if this is some like could easily get swallowed up in you know, the impending summer box office. What about you, Brad? Yeah. I I just think you're, you're going and you're seeing the movie poster. You're like, yeah, I like that BB Cates, but you know, I'm not going to go out to see a film just because she's in it. And then you see this absurdist comedian on it. And you're like, I don't even know who the hell that guy is. And then you look in the newspaper and you're like, oh, everyone hates this movie. And some people are even calling it the worst film ever made. I am not going to go see that. I'm going to go watch What About Bob? You know, like, I I think easily the casting and the critical reception pretty much killed this thing before it even had a chance. Um, Why they would release it in May, like before the, you know, kind of right when your summer is kicking off. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't get that at all. Um, yeah, and I didn't even think about that. What about Bob connection? Cause that was, if I'm correct, PG rated. It is also a comedy dealing with like emotional yeah, trauma. Yep. Yep. So you have one, which granted, I will say this, I did love drop dead Fred going up, but I do prefer what about Bob as a cohesive film. It's better. Um, but yeah, I think, people would probably just gravitate towards that. You had the better star power. It's more accessible. I didn't even think of how basically piggybacking off of that probably hurt it more than helped it. Yeah. I, if you go back and watch the trailer to this and then go back and see the film, at least my initial impressions when I saw in the theater was it felt very much like a bait and switch uh, because you do think you're going in for something that looks like, okay, if, if you're familiar with the young ones and you love that Rick character and you love, you know, the actor and you start to see in the commercials that he's bringing some of that high energy chaos into it, you get really excited and kind of go, well, this, this movie's just going to be bonkers comedy. Right. Um, and to your point, Justin, you've got some stuff like problem child and everything out there. So you're just assuming it's going to be a bit juvenile. Even the poster kind of sells it that way. But I think the critics, uh, audiences, everything kind of picked up on it. When you go see this thing, 
it is not what about Bob? I mean, there, there's a little bit more pedigree behind the camera in that film and even in front of it. But uh, it, it, it might be an amalgamation of Beetlejuice and what about Bob? You could say that. And I don't, I don't think audiences like that. Uh, and definitely critics don't. If you go back and read some of the critical reviews on this thing, they trashed it. And like Brad said, it, it came up on a lot of worse stuff lists that year. I remember Siskel absolutely yeah. hated this thing. Yes. I remember him calling it one of the worst films he's ever seen. And when they did their like worst of, and he brought it up, Roger Ebert said, I was on vacation that week. When I came back, I was going to see it until I read your review and decided, eh, I'll save my time. Yeah. And I can definitely say as, as a viewer of that time period. And again, this is like, you know, high school to college, that age group. I, we didn't like it at all. None, none of us really cared for it. Uh, and we went back and, and tried to watch like old episodes of young ones on VHS or something like that. So to, to cleanse the palate, to cleanse the palate. Yes. Or, you know. I, I think, I, I think it's hard now for people to understand just how important the film critic was in the nineties in the eighties and the nineties. And even kind of early in the two thousands where before the internet, before you could go out and really kind of find a critic that spoke to you you were going to these guys who worked for these big papers and you're reading what they say. And if they said, this is one of the worst films I ever have seen, you're not going to go see it. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, some people will because they're cinemasochists, but um, <laughs> most people will say, okay, there's plenty of other stuff we can see. We're not going to waste our money. We'll go see something else. Yeah. Um, th- this is the dawn downplay of- the, the importance mm-hmm. of the critic at that time. Especially yeah. for a film like this, because I think certain movies could be quote unquote critic proof, whether it be your like Batman's or something that has that marketing behind it. But a comedy like this, especially like we're saying without any star power, it's going to live and die on if the critics came out and liked it. And if they're going to trash it, like to your point, Brad, it's they're like, why waste the time here? Or at the very least, why see it in the theater when there's other options right now? And we could just maybe see it on video or HBO if. They even remember it by the time it hits those markets. Yeah. yeah I mean, and Troy saw it and he wasn't like going out and telling other people to see it. Word of mouth was probably terrible too. We saw, <laughs> we saw everything. Out, so. We saw everything. I mean, you got to, you got to understand this time period. I was also working in the movie theater. So if I, if it was playing in the movie theater, chances are we, we saw it, we saw it a couple times. I mean, like you said, this came out about around the time of Hudson Hawk. We saw Hudson Hawk, you know, I don't know how many times in the theater because was it wasn't our ship. We go watch it. that. Right. <laughs> Um, we'd go watch this, uh, we paid to go watch this film and, and felt kind of cheated, but this is primarily one of those films too, that, um, you, you're absolutely right, Brad, you paid a little bit more attention to what the critics were saying about a film, because if you, if you didn't know you were more likely to take a chance on that thing in the video store on VHS than you were to go out in the theaters, because if you look at what was being released in the theaters, I mean, Today, it's it's nothing to kind of go, okay, there's two or three new releases that came out this weekend. If you're really a diehard fan, you could see all three. I mean, I think, uh, I, Jose, I think you saw Renfield because I know you guys are talking about it this week. Mm-hmm. Um, the only That's other- Justin, by the way. Oh, sorry, Justin. <laughs> That's sorry. okay. I, you know, we look a very alike. You do. That's why we do a show together. But where my head was going was Jose also turned around and saw the Pope's Exorcist mm-hmm. or something. And I think outside of that, that's about the only two major releases, the right? The only other movie that came out and wide was Mafia Mama. It was apparently a Cinemascus kind of weekend. And, but yeah, I mean, not only that, but if you're not a diehard, you can wait a month 
and yeah. it's going to be available. Like there's, it's not this, I mean, I was talking about this when I was visiting with you guys, I was telling Landon, even when I was a kid and it was probably easier than it was for you guys, even then it would take at least six to seven months for a movie to hit video after it's theatrical release, unless it really did bad and they rushed it. Like if you wanted to really wanted to see it and you didn't want to wait, you went now it's just like, the only reason I go to the theater half the time outside of liking the experience is because Regal has a subscription plan plan. So I'm only paying 20 a month or 21 a month. If you take that away, I'm going to be more selective because do I need to go see the Pope's exorcist in a theater or better example air? I called it cause I had free time, but if not, that's something I could have waited for. Yeah. I, I think that's always been since the V you know, the VHS days, mm-hmm. I think, you know, streaming is no different, probably right. a little bit easier, easier um, and just faster now is really what it just comes down to. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm super curious to jump into what you guys think of this. Uh, again, Brad and I, we, we talk quite often daily, multiple times during the day. And a lot of times our opinions will seep in, especially when you watch the film, but that hasn't happened this week. So these, these are the weeks I get really curious about where this is going to fall. So I I have no idea. So how about we take just a quick break and we come back and we're going to, we're going to dive into figuring drop dead Fred out. So stay tuned. It's a big date. They love their popcorn. Look what they ate. This kind of action the main attraction. Oh, boy, ain't love grand. He's buying lots of goodies, ice cream, Pepsi, and peanuts, too. Living on love's not easy. You need your strength to woo. Now he returns. What's this she yearns? Refreshing Pepsi, a kiss he earns. Romance and pleasure, and for good measure, thirst-quenching Pepsi. For those who think young... Prepare yourself for the shock show of the year, The Child, together with Axe, The Child, a young girl with unearthly powers who plays hide-and-go-kill, The Child, and on the same program, Axe, more shocking than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. See Axe and The Child, at last, total terror in one show. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. We're back, Justin. I'm going to kick it over to you. This is this is a, a favorite of yours. I, I didn't know that. I'm super curious. So, you, how many? I mean, you watch this on the regular or nowadays? No, it's actually been a long time since I went back and revisited it. Somewhat out of fear because this I watched this regularly as a kid to the point where there is a scene in the movie uh, where they're all of the imaginary friends come together that the tape was pretty worn out. So it would keep cutting in and out. Ironically, of all scenes in the movie, that's the scene I couldn't really see much of. Uh, And I don't know why we owned this. And I know we owned it, not like recorded it off. Like somebody recorded off HBO and sent it to us. Like that would happen from most films. We own the actual VHS copy. And I don't know if it's because it was very cheap or I have a half sister. So I don't know if when she was visiting, she brought it over and just left it there. But 
I fell oddly in love with this movie as a kid. And I think it's because I discovered it right after discovering like Jim Carrey and like around like 96. And how, how are, old were you when you discovered it? Probably about five or six, I okay. think, which, right. which just so the listeners know, I also watched RoboCop when I was five and my parents had no problem with that. So yeah, it's it was a wholesome a film, man. Yeah. It's a d- different time. And I remember watching this with my parents and yeah, take that capitalism. I'm watching yes. RoboCop. <laughs> I learned all about Reaganomics. Uh, what's even weirder though, is I remember uh, like most kids, I had like an imaginary friend and I had like a really bad problem with my imaginary friend. I say it's probably this movie that was at fault, but like my parents used to say, this was what they kind of ha- used as therapy and watching this now as an adult. I'm like, I don't know why, because this is more of a dark comedy that I, the PG 13 rating should have given away. I don't actually think this was intended for children. At least I want to think it wasn't. I, I don't know if they marketed it as such. Obviously I somehow fell into that. I don't know this, who it was intended for. I'm curious who you think it was intended for. <laughs> I don't know because like I can say now because of its cult following, that's who it could be intended for. But at the time, I really don't because it, this is not a kid's film. To me, this is a perverse parody of a children's film. I brought up Problem Child because to a degree, it almost feels like it's not mocking that, but saying, okay, what if we took this slightly dark comedy approach and let's just go really weird with it in this movie. But then like, who are you making this for? Like outside of like in America, you know, you have some Rick Mayall fans, but like this wasn't, I had always thought this was like a British film company that just made a movie in america now this was like financed by what was it new line or universal like this wasn't I something think it was one of would've... polygrams first polygrams uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. one of theirs yeah so yeah. it's not like this was something that was like an overseas and i could see maybe like had a bigger fan base in you know the united kingdom like no this was intended for here but i did i watched this thing on the regular i watched this and howard the duck a lot as a kid so i really think me as the Cinemascus makes a lot of sense now growing up looking at two of the movies that I grew up loving. Now I can still see and actually really enjoy Howard the Duck. Now this movie, I, I still actually liked it, but in a weird way, I, as this very dark parody of like a children's film and what you would expect almost from, uh, I don't want to say a lifetime movie, but what's supposed to be like a, a drama maybe on like depression, anxiety and that it kind of works, but I don't even know if that's the point. Like I'm curious once that DVD Blu-ray comes in to dive in more, cause I'm still lost on what the actual point of this movie is, but I'd be lying if I said, I didn't still laugh at some of this, the, the, the bit with the cobwebs <laughs> that line gets me every time. The physical gags, they're stupid, but and I know it's more nostalgia, but like everything with like Mayall bouncing around makes me laugh. I also realized on this repeat viewing that he kind of inspired a lot of Tom Green. Like I strangely was thinking about Freddie got fingered quite a bit during this, especially the scene where they're uh they had the dog poop and he's like running around with it. He goes, the dog poop, the dog poop. I'm like, did, did Tom Green just watches and that's half of what Freddie got fingered is and just repeating like bizarre statements. I'm so my bum tr- is on your face. My, my bum, bum is, is on your face. Would you like daddy? Would you like some sausages? <laughs> that's another film I used to hate, but it's kind of growing on me in a perverse way. Um, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head on this, but I, I liked it in a weird way. I think, it's 
was ahead of its time because I think a lot of what you would see on Adult Swim, like a Tim and Eric and some of the like BoJack Horseman, how that's like this weird comedy that centers a lot on like emotional abuse and trauma. I can see this film inspiring a lot of that kind of a humor. It's not as refined as or as pitch black or as sharp as some of these more recent comedies are. But I still had a perverse enjoyment with this, even if it is just watching Carrie Fisher try to wrestle an invisible man and then kind of just revealing her her true intentions and the weirdest i don't know who this was made for i'm still trying to figure that out i don't know who but but you enjoyed it more but i enjoyed apparently it was made for me and i know a lot of that's still nostalgia because i got those weird feelings of like oh man i remember watching this scene a lot as a kid but i wasn't laughing a lot like i used to as a kid but i was strangely compelled by everything going on and just trying to figure out what was happening. Okay. What Brett. So Brad, this oh, is your, fir- Oh boy. This is your first watch, right? All the way through. It is. It is my first watch. All right. Go. Uh, and what a, and what a watch it was. Let right. me tell you, um, this one was difficult for me because I do like it's attempt at dark humor. I mean, this film is dark, like dark. Like there are some things they are, thinking about like the mom at one point in time tells the little girl to her face. The reason her father left was because of her. I was like, wow, we are, we are doing some stuff. Um, but I kind of hated every second of this. <laughs> really? It was, <laughs> but I, I can't, I don't know who it was made for. I, I, I have so many questions that we, we will get to later. But I, I just I don't understand what is going on. And there's this weird third act sort of I'm going to go into my own psyche and untape myself from the bed sort of thing. Like it's so unearned. And I, I felt well, um, it starts a little bit before that. Right. It starts with the going to the doctor and him saying, if you take these pills, then yeah, this imaginary friend dies and you'll be normal. Right. So that yeah. that's really kind of the beginning of the third act, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just a really bizarre film, but I think your boy Rick just makes it almost insufferable to get through <laughs> because he is turned up so high and like, I'm okay with comedians really going like, I think early Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, like those guys who are really physical comedians, Chris Farley, you know, they're over the top, but I don't know. I didn't find him charming. Um, I was always weirded out that he was not an age appropriate, uh, imaginary friend. Um, and we can get into some of the theories on that, that I have. I just, I, I just, I could not get through this without the constant moaning and groaning that, that I do. Um, How many times did I, you pause? A few times. Um, did you watch it in one sitting? I did. Okay. I did. Cause I didn't want to have to come back to it. You know, it was nice <laughs> to see, it was nice to see Carrie Fisher. Um, it was nice to see, um, you know, Tim Matherson. I, I just, there's a Bridget Phoebe Fonda, Ka- like for yeah, two Bridget minutes. Fonda for like two Shows seconds. Up. Yeah. But I just like Phoebe Cates was this weird childlike character. And I know like that's the whole point, but 
I don't know what her deal was. And then with the mom, sometimes I'm like, was the mom that bad? And then she would do something like, oh, yeah, the mom's that bad. But then she's not. And then like the dad, I I just, I was. Okay, that, 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 that one's curious. That one little statement, the mom. Let's talk about the mom real quick. You, there, there were sequences she you thought she wasn't. Take, she does take her to get help. It was, it was kind of what I was getting at. I oh, mean, okay. she takes her to like a pediatric psychologist, but or psychiatrist. Um, I, I just, I don't know, man. I was, I think I was so confused and so thinking about who were they making this for? Like, why, like, why make this film and why make it this way? Like I get it. We could have done like a what about what about Bob meets Beetlejuice meets sort of a problem child sort of deal. Um, but like all the female relationships are like age inappropriate. Carrie Fisher's husband looks like he's a hundred and seven. It's not a, it's not her husband. She's that guy's married and she's having an affair with him on the side and gets well, to sleep does, with him once a month. Whatever. I mean, it's not a that guy is <laughs> 50 years older than Carrie Fisher. And then Tim Matherson is a good 30 years. It seems like 30 years older than Phoebe Cates. And she's such like a girlish. It was just creepy because she plays it so teenage that I was really freaked out. Um, I will say, I think knowing that we had brought some of the issues the director was dealing with. I don't know if that was ever originally in like the OG treatment or if he brought that in here because I was thinking that throughout and I didn't read about that until right before hopping on here because I had to get some kind of answers. I'm like, it seems deliberate that everyone like there are these weird age differences and everyone's acting weird. Maybe this movie was just made for the director and that's maybe, maybe 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 this was his outlet. It could be his outlet to get his, you know, his trauma from being molested out, which I can totally see. Okay. But I hated it, Troy. I hated every second of it. All right. So <laughs> this movie sucks. I, I'm curious. So how when was the last time you saw What About Bob? Because that came out around the same time, right? Oh, it's been 15, 20 years. I and I'm same, same with me. I'm trying to think about it. There, there he was writing a book called Baby Steps or something of that nature, but mm-hmm. I may be oversimplifying it because I, I I should have watched it. If I had known that it had come out so close to this, I would have really loved to revisit that. What I do remember, I mean, it's directed by Yoda, so it's got to be much better. Yeah, but I mean, in that case, wasn't the 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 psychological disorders or or the Bill Murray? I mean, he was a germaphobe, right? Yeah, but wasn't it wasn't it really heightened and played for more laughs than seriousness? And what about Bob? Yeah, because I do remember it's been about ten years for me since I've revisited it, but I remember the running gag in that was. Bill Murray is rightfully driving this doctor insane, but nobody else can see it because I, I think it was a mixture of germaphobe. Maybe he was a hypochondriac, but I know he became the whole gist was he became attached to the doctor because, you know, he goes away on this vacation. Well, I can't handle being alone. So he just abruptly comes on to the vacation. I can't, there's probably a whole litany of problems they gave him, but that one was more in a way straight laced. Because I think it was still aiming to be this, like, just kind of a broad comedy, almost an yeah, straight lace type you thing. Could be with like Bill Murray. Well, yeah, yeah, straight lace, but but the mental health issues are mm-hmm. are not treated with seriousness, but all no. for like absurdity, right? 
Oh, yeah. Not yeah. that I can recall. I don't remember it ever having an about face where it becomes serious about the mental health. Okay. Yeah, I, I was trying to put that together because that it it's surprising to me that around this time period, you start to have these movies come out with a little bit of that as a subplot or thorough line about mental health. And, and you have these characters and you have one film that's extremely popular, but like you said, it, it's played more straight laced. It's played more for the general public. And then you have this one, which is way darker uh, and, and way more seriousness in its treatment of the topic than what about Bob? And so to me that, that probably answers the question of why one uh, was more well-received than the other. I mean, that that's fair, right? I mean, but you have Bill Murray, like at the, on your poster, I think that sells the film by itself. Yeah, but I, I don't remember what about Bob ever getting as dark as this one did. No. Or did it? I don't not think that so. I, not that I can recall. Okay. I'll well, tell you with the audience, what about Bob is a 79 and Drop Dead Fred is a 77. So they're crazy. About roughly. Yeah. Now the critics, what yeah. about Bob is an 82. So I feel yeah. like, I don't know if cinema score was around back in the early nineties. I feel like that audience score would have been much lower upon this initial release. Cause that is definitely cult fans or weirdos like me who grew up with this that are pushing that rating up. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to overly summarize this, but Justin, you're saying you grew up on it, right? It's one of those films that get you get attached to at an early age. You watch it like crazy VHS, and um, even in revisiting it, you still like it, mm-hmm. and, and you recognize some of the things it does right, but it probably has that nostalgia hold on you, right? Yeah, it's, it's a very weird one to wrap my head around because nostalgia plays a factor on why I think a lot of the stuff with Rick Mayall does work. Cause I feel like if I came to this, having not seen it as a child, even if I knew who Rick was, I would probably be like Brad just find it incredibly grating, even if that is the point. But there is that nostalgia of like, nah, I thought this was funny when I was a kid, all the stuff like the adults, I would either ignore or just skip past. So that was more interesting to see now to try to actually dissect if it's trying to make a point on long time emotional trauma that goes undiagnosed and maybe even how flippant, I mean, we can get to it later, but like, even just here, take this pill and that's going to cure you. That's not, no, that's not how it works. You, it's, it's a supplement, but you, you know, you, you need Sometimes to actually, you have to face the trauma. Yeah. You have to, which is what they try to do in the ending strange, strangely, but not quite well, but like, there's a lot more to it than just that. So, but I still considering I, I do take this as this dark comedy. I, I liked it in a different way than I would have when I was as a kid. I was afraid of it not holding up, and in one aspect it doesn't, but in another area it's strangely compelling. Okay, and then Brad's take on it is shoot me. I, I can't. <laughs> I can't get through this thing. Yeah, twice. Make <laughs> twice. sure I'm dead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I kind of. I. I don't know. I. I kind of after watching the or not even watching it after knowing about this. A, I was surprised you picked it from the list. I know we get a lot of requests about this. Uh, and even when we were at horror hound and looking, you know, stopped by the vinegar syndrome table and seeing that film again, you're like, Hey, we get to talk about this. And I'm just like, no, I don't. I, Troy doesn't want to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> Troy, Troy endured that film back in the nineties. And that was enough. Um, be, and, and I've already said it, I, I hated this movie when it first came out and, and I know why I did. I was looking for an American version of the young ones hijinks that sort of, um, 
punk rock anarchist comedy that was coming through and thought, okay, he's, he's going to take this Rick character from the young ones and, and bring it over. And I, I remember specifically going, the humor's not resonating with me. I'm, I'm super bored. And, uh, the, the comedy didn't work at, at any aspect. And, and honestly, I forgot about this film. Uh, and full disclosure, most of the time when we say, cause the, the schedule's planned out for a couple of months in advance. So we know what's coming up. And what I'll try to do is watch the film as early as possible in the week, because if there's a chance that there's an audio commentary or a bunch of special features, maybe I just want to watch it again two or three times, you know, just, just cause I liked it or watch something associated with it. And I, I don't know if you guys do this on your show. I mean, you, you watch them as early as possible, not knowing mm-hmm. what kind of rabbit hole it's going to take you down. Um, oh yeah. I, I tend to anytime we cover, cause we cover new stuff. So it's a little bit more difficult, but if it's like, you know, black Panther Wakanda forever, well, I'll go down the rabbit hole and what maybe if I don't get around to rewatching the first black Panther, go through all the special features to see what their mindset was on the first one and see if that translates to the viewing of the sequel. So I, I get, I get that mentality. Definitely. Yeah. I, I watched this today. I put it off to the very last minute. <laughs> I was like, I was dreading it. Um, and even then, if I had a choice, I would have watched it a couple of hours and then just jumped on and talked about it because my expectation on this thing was like, I, I, I don't just don't want to sit here for whatever the time allotment it is and go, this is dumb. I hate this movie. <laughs> I hated it back then. I hate it now. Uh, what I did do is go back and look at, I'm like, why, why is it a cult film? Why do people like it? There were two interesting reviews that I found. Um, one was from Carl Schroeder, who was writing for Mystical Movie Guide. So I just want to read this. The imaginary friend is convortingly rude for a reason. He served to push the girl child to do mischief for attention and as a cry for help. Now grown up, the woman is forgotten and is about to lose her soul. So events call for some kind of literal return of her demon to force the exposure of her pain. This psychic crisis is poignantly realistic. The creature who is visible only to the woman is like a poltergeist energy of her repressed self, a problematic ego container into which her powers of assertion and creativity were poured and stored. Um, He went on to call the film startlingly beautiful. That's the term he used for it. And then here's another one. um, Alexander Larman wrote for the telegraph, and this is as recent as 2021. Uh, He praised the film, calling it a sophisticated and ahead of its time black comic exploration of anxiety and depression. Um, And film critic Johanna Steinmetz suggested that the film's premise was inspired by children with imaginary friends who later develop dissociative identity disorder. So that's just a different thing. Now, I read these like a couple of days ago. I was like. BS, no way, not drop dead Fred, forget it. And just totally dreading this thing. So I watched it now and I think this film is the definition of how cult films work a hundred percent. So they speak to a select group and have meaning that maybe the general public doesn't get right. I mean, at a high level, that's what cult movies do. And you may have had some kind of significant experience in your life. 
and maybe there's elements of the film that resonate with you and then you just watch it over and over again. And it's usually that select group that all of a sudden start championing something time and time again, even after it's done playing in the theaters. Uh, or maybe it's subtext is so nuanced that hardcore movie lovers will pick up on it and realize what's going on, but the general population doesn't. And is that a fair assessment of Drop Dead Fred? I mean, does that make sense? Like you, you can totally look at this film and go, if somebody has had that experience or it resonates with them on some level, then this movie's really talking to them and it, and it just kind of goes uh, places that they aren't expecting and all of a sudden becomes like this visual vocalization of their inner thoughts. I can see it because I don't know how deep I'll get on this discussion, but I did grow up with a lot of uh, anxiety, depression, and some mental health issues. And some of it that I probably wouldn't have been able to pick up on as a kid, I strangely noticed this time. And I wasn't sure if that was me putting more of my experiences into this weird, twisted appraisal or viewing of what a mental health issue can be. But I can see why people gravitate towards this. Even that finale, which I kind of agree with Brad, it doesn't quite feel earned, but it's also on its own, strangely cathartic, having to actually face your own demons and save yourself. Don't know if it's, it's just, it's weird that it's in this movie. <laughs> like, that's where I'm still like trying to wrap my head around because how I took it this time and why I still kind of liked it was as this just really dark parody of like children's movies and medical or mental health dramas. And I don't know before I knew about the director's molestation issues, I would have just assumed that's what it was. But now knowing that does make me think a lot of that, having to face your own demons, this case of being Fred and dealing with repression and mother uh, basically kind of repressing her daughter's own emotions until it blows up in her face is adult probably why she's with tim matheson and everyone else in this is with people way out of their age range because it would make a lot more sense considering what had happened to the director i get it because i mean a lot of people gravitate towards bojack horseman because of a lot of its mental health commentary even if i sometimes feel that people miss the point that it's not always meant to be sympathetic it's meant to be poking not fun but making you face your demons instead of just accepting them or almost complimenting them if you will yeah and uh, does that resonate i mean do those two reviews resonate with you at all brad in terms of the type of film it is i can see it i i, I know what they're doing I, I think sometimes people are looking for the piece of corn in the uh shit if you will like <laughs> i can I, you oh know, my I god that you analogy <laughs> I can give you I can give you a dissertation on how um I don't know like Tango and Cash is the greatest film of all time and it's about uh Lost Brotherhood and all this stuff and I can make a really solid point about it. Um I just I don't again I don't know if this is that movie. I, I just I, I don't know I guess it just doesn't do the legwork for me to earn all the accolades that people are trying to put on it. Um, yeah, to me, it's like, let's put all this lipstick on this pig and call it something else. I don't, I just don't get it. Yeah. I, I gotta be honest with you. I, I look at it as absurdist comedy trying to deal with mental health issues. And what it's trying to do is highlight the pressures of what it's, 
what it takes to be normal and how we take pills to kill our inner imagination where people around us are suppressing that inner imagination. But I, I gotta be honest with you. I fucking love this film. Oh, God damn it. How did I, the way you kept dancing around it, I was like, is he turning around and loving it? I did a 180 on this thing today. Uh, I think there is this depth there. You just spun around in your chair. It was like, and I love this film. Suck it, Brad. (laughs) Look, there's, I, I'll say this. No, explain. Yes. I want you to explain yourself to me right now. There this is textbook gaslighting 101 from the Tim Matheson character before the term gaslight gaslighting was really sort of within our, our culture. And when you talk about abusive parents and parents using what they consider to be, Hey, I'm doing this for the good of my child. But in fact, it's a power play every day of their life. Uh, I, I think when you look at, let's call them villains, right? So the Marsha and Tim are villains. I think they're super convincing. And you get textbook examples of those two um, very distressful, like psychological uh, actions, right? That, that can occur. And it's not pulling its punches in that fashion, meaning it's played straight. When you look at those characters, it's played straight and not from an absurdist perspective, the absurdity comes from the Rick Maul character and the chaos and everything that's out there. And what I find super interesting is all of this stuff is going on, but then these lines jump out and they just hit you. Um, some of the lines that kind of hit me, that was just like, Oh my gosh, I, I kind of understand what that means now at 50, which is when something is not working right, the best thing is to tear it apart to make it better. I mean, he says that to her and I'm like, holy shit, that's, that's true. That's a hundred percent true. Um, and then there's another line that comes out from the, uh, love interest or the, you know, the neighborhood boy or whatever. And he says, don't you hate it when you're right about the wrong things? And I'm like, exactly. I mean, <laughs> so what I, what I really respect about this film is it takes these serious, uh, characters that are doing these deplorable things when you think about it from a mental health perspective. And you see a woman who's trying to deal with that and her coping mechanism is this imaginary friend. But there are these subtle nuances throughout these characters that I I just didn't expect that I would care so much in this viewing. And um, I really appreciate what Phoebe Cates and Rick Mal's performances are doing. Um, I think it works because of those two. I think it actually works because of those two and it works because of Marsha Mason and Tim Matheson. Um, Phoebe Cates, I, I do think she has really good comedy skills and understands comic timing, especially when she's trying to do those things and you can't, you know, nobody else can see Fred. So you, you just go those shots of her, um, trying to resist those urges and Rick delivers some lines that More actually specifically like at lunch, right? The, the lunch. Yeah. Um, yeah. and and then Rick will deliver these lines. I mean, you, you mentioned one of them, Justin, about the cobwebs, but, but the thing that I was laughing out loud of because I, I must not have paid attention in the first viewing was um, when he discovers that she's an adult and she does adult things 
and uh, he's like married and, and you, you do things like the pigeons do. I mean, he, he makes that comment in the beginning <laughs> and then towards the back end of the film when they're making out on the couch because the husband's come back and he's standing there like, what? That's not how pigeons do it. You're supposed to stamp on her head and peck at it. <laughs> I, was, I was laughing pretty hard at that stuff. So um, I, I don't know. I, and I, I, I think having family members now after 50 years, because growing up and, and maybe this is it. Cause this is, this is where I think the cult movie definition comes from. This movie didn't speak to me back in 91. Um, and I'm not saying my parents are perfect. I'm just, don't get me wrong. I mean, I think everybody has, you know, the good and bad of parents, but I wasn't at a place where it was like, okay, I'm, I'm going into a film looking for something like the long, the young ones and I'm expecting the comedy and when you throw these dramatic elements and even this theme that's going on about um, sort of rekindling your own identity and uh, having a little bit of anarchy in your life and just kind of going, you know what, it's okay to feel out of place. You don't have to take a pill to, to crush that imagination. Like normal isn't just fitting in to all these other people's definitions. In 91, I, I wasn't worried about that. But now having watched that um, fight within my daughter um, watching it, other family members go through that. And me, even as a father of a child that is, um, suffering from like depression and stuff like that. And, and us having to kind of go through, Hey, what kind of medicine is out there, et cetera. And always being worried about, okay, if you take this, what does that do in terms of personality or what does that do in terms of, um, your creativity and like your lust for life and everything else? I mean, um, this, this film hits you if you've had any kind of experiences like that, either personally or been around it or even associated to it. And uh, I, I think it's really like I totally understand now why so many people love this film. I get it. I, I, I get your point there. I just think there's better films for that. Like I think of like Shutter Island. I think Shutter Island does this better with like trying to deal with trauma. And I don't like think that. Shutter Island is out there from a message of empowerment. I think Shutter Island deals with the same topics, but it's doing it from a thriller perspective and a, yeah. Hey, we're going to give you a plot twist at the end. I think this film is talking to a specific audience and um, it's warning them about the dangers of, losing that creativity of gas, like the mental, I mean, this is more of an empowering film than something like shutter Island. What about Bob? I'm, I really want to go back and watch, watch what about Bob? Cause I don't think there is that emotional impact in either of those two films that this movie has. I'm going to agree with you for the most part, because I mean, I hinted at the fact that I have dealt grown up dealing a lot with mental health issues, pretty much my whole childhood was trying to figure out what worked and what didn't. And it's easy, it's very difficult when it comes on to medication because it can sometimes paint it black and white of, and like you said, well, is it always bad or it just, just make you lose who you are. But the hardest thing that comes with medication and why it was such a big problem for me was finding the right one. Yeah. Like, you know, and I finally, after all these years, I found the one that works where I still get to have my creativity and my energy without it, you know, sapping that from me, but and it is scary going through all that, but I think what kind of stuck out to me in this one, and I'm going to still stick somewhat with Brad where on this revisit, I don't know if it always earned it, but 
that finale did kind of hit me. Her having to face her own demons on top of, you know, accepting who she is and freeing herself. As somebody who's fought with his own mental demons for a long time, that's the hardest thing I think any therapist will tell you is figuring out what is wrong with you. Not what's wrong with you, but what is troubling you and that it's not a problem because you act this way. It's how you handle that. Like the problem was always more of how we responded. I mean, for me, just shutting down completely was the problem and not addressing it for a long time was a problem more than whatever it was actually bringing out of me. And the the empowerment of you, you are not a problem or you were not messed up or broken. You just almost have like a different path in life to what makes you you. I do think there is a good moment. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of got emotional when, I guess we're spoiling the film, when she hugs her younger self as she's finally, like, realized, you know, who she is. And even, like, Rick Miles, like, no, you've got to go on this on your own. It's strangely cathartic. Like It, it, it is. I, I think it's – and like I said, I, I'm, I'm not proposing that this film is like, oh, don't take any help from psychiatrists yeah. or drugs. I think what it's basically saying, and, and you make a great point, like, the, the thing that I had to learn was you can take a, a medicine to try and help with depression, but – now you have to figure out how your body's going to react to that. And then there might be 15 variations of that thing that have all these different, you know, side effects. And, and you may spend years before you get to, to the right one and go, oh, well, that didn't crush my positivity. I can get out of bed, all the other stuff. And it, it takes time. I think this film does a really good job of trying to take that in some type of Tim Burton-esque fairy tale aspect a little bit. It feels very Tim Burton at moments. And I think that's intentional. But from a 90-minute storytelling perspective, I think it does a really good job of at least anybody who's been close to that type of issue. By the end of the film, out of the chaos and the anarchy and everything that goes on, you come to this realization that it's like, hey, if 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 I can get comfortable with myself and just you know find out what the the right mix is, there's light at the end of the tunnel, and it is very empowering message, which I wasn't expecting out of this i wasn't expecting him to take all of this dark material and and pair it up with the the rick male stuff and then at the end of the film you walk away and go well i don't i don't know who this movie was made for from a theatrical perspective but i totally understand what's a, why it's a cult movie and i understand why it talks to people mm -hmm. yeah well sure I, I i get what you are saying and i think her at the end, hugging her herself and then coming back. And then it's like two steps, one step forward, like seven step back. She then wipes a booger on Tim Matheson's face. And like, it's like, that's not okay. We're trying, steps. To, we're trying to like deal with growing up and trauma and like shedding, becoming a woman and, and, and getting rid of this. But, but I, but I don't think what it's saying is that the, the end message is not, Grow up, be adult, responsible, no, not, it's not all this that. other stuff. It's just, but it, it's still, it's like her still stepping out and then like she rubs a booger on a man's face and then walks out. I'm like, I, I don't know. I just feel like that was just a weird choice where you're, you're, you're finally coming around that maybe this person is, is changing and all the hijinks and all the stuff are, are behind her. And then something like that happens. And I'm like, uh, maybe. I, I don't well and I, I I understand what you're saying, but I think I think the point of it is this. She fought so hard against those hijinks that 
that represents a balance of I can embrace it at the right time as sort of an F you to authority or F you to the people that are gaslighting me. Cause I mean, Tim Matheson's yeah. writing yeah. a textbook on gaslighting, right? And so she can use this drop dead Fred um, signature move, if you want to call that, right? Mm -hmm. And kind of stick it to him from her mental perspective, but she's still grown. She's just mm -hmm. found that right balance, right? I mean, crap. Yeah, I, it's, I, I, I don't have the answer for it, but I can tell you this. Being grown up 24-7 is not the answer. You got to like <laughs> embrace your 13-year-old self <laughs> yeah, every once gotta, in a while. And if you don't, you're going to go insane in this like fucked up world. Yeah. And I, I think, and this is where I, I do see where you're coming from, Brad, because sometimes I think it's almost at war with still wanting to maybe bring some of those comedic elements back into it. Yeah. But I also can read that moment as like a baby step because she's not going to be completely, you know, I don't want to even say the word fix. I think it's a wrong word, but not completely uh, redeem rede redeemed. She hasn't completely redeemed herself in that moment. But like Troy said, she's finding those boundaries. And how I took it is you can find the right medication that works with you, but any good therapist will also tell you, you've got to find what triggers you and how are you going to react to those triggers? Uh, you know, my biggest one that I've grown as an adult now, cause I have bad panic attacks is for the longest time. I thought pacing, walking around, going outside while I'm having a really bad panic attack was helping. That was making it a million times worse. And it was why I was a nervous wreck. As much as I used to hate the, Ooh, just doing a breathing technique that actually works for me. If I just stop, slow your heart down. Yeah, yeah, grab the cat. And that's the thing. As much, Troy, you have cats now. As much as we like to say they're not as affectionate as dogs, at least my cat is very affectionate when I have pa panic attacks. He will lay on my chest and like purr and start kneading on me, basically to be tell me you're all right. And I was finding that when I was like moving around in that, maybe this is a little bit too deep, but what they were telling me was like, it's almost like you're trying to run away from a problem instead of dealing with it. But that, so that's so, I, something I, that I always dealt with. So I took that booger thing as like her way of still facing that childhood and not completely repressing it, but also facing Tim Matheson, but not having to do it in a grand way because she's not there yet to handle this on a more mature level, but she needs to get away from him. So she doesn't get gaslit again to come back. Granted, I still think that moment's there just to kind of call back to all the comedy as well. So that's why it doesn't completely work. But I, I can see where its intentions lie and how it's still, like I said, kind of cathartic. It, it is. And and I think your your personal example is a great example of just kind of showing you, you go through these stages to figure it out until you get to that place. And I, I think we're, that's where that movie you know lands, even in her embrace with her mother at the end where the mother's just you know, just kind of basically says, if you leave, you know, she says some really nasty things to her mm -hmm. at the end of the film about, mm -hmm. you know, basically I had you to try and save a marriage, not because I wanted a kid, but because I wanted a marriage anchor baby. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, she's, you know, she just breaks down. I was like, well, if you leave, I'm alone. And her response is, you know, gives her a hug and says, we need to find a friend. So all I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not here saying that this director in this screenplay revolutionized 90 cinema. <laughs> I'm not saying that, but I am saying that it is a very unique, wonderful film for taking that topic and then blending it with that style of comedy and coming out on top of my opinion, in terms of storytelling and getting you really to like these characters. And for me, it, it's an example of sometimes movies like, um, 
Brad and I hate Halloween kills. Uh, that was the last ends, one. I think. Ends, ends. Yeah. Yes. We, we hate that film. Um, and I, I know your partner, Jose sent us the book of the film because there's supposed to be some more backstory, but I'm telling you right now, I, I hate that movie. <laughs> Give it another, what, 25, 30, no, 30 some years. I don't know, I'm not going to give it that long, but <laughs> I will revisit it. But th this is a great example of sometimes some of these films, you, you either got to be at the right mindset, the right experience, or the right age before it hits you. And, you know, 18-year-old Troy was like, well, this is a piece of crap. 50-year-old Troy is like, holy cow, they really tried for something here, swung for the fences uh, and I, I totally understand its cult status and I, I kind of fell in love with it a little bit. And, and for me, I just found it so weird that I, I not weird that I would have taken to this as a kid because those moments with they all, especially coming off of like the mask with Jim Carrey and then discovering this on video, it makes sense. I mean, even as the, the cartoonish eyes at one point when he's, you know, with the no panties, but, but it's also weird because. I'm not saying this movie caused any of that, but it's weird that it somehow ended up being a precursor to some of the issues I would have been dealing with eventually. And it's like a weird coming full circle with my childhood and then adulthood. It was a very beguiling experience revisiting this as sure. an adult. I have, I have a, I have a question and I, I thought about this because <clears throat> you would think the trauma that created Fred as Fred is a, an older man would be the absentee father of the story. And it's not mm -hmm. right. So Fred, Fred, what do you mean a, by that? Exactly. So the father leaving is not the creation is not the Genesis of drop dead Fred, but the father's British and Fred is British, right? I, I understand. Yeah. So yeah. he's like replacing, but the father, like Fred was around before the father left. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I, I got the impression that I don't know what the initial trauma was. It just because the the mother was, you know, I, a super bitch is like what they're kind of calling her, or what 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 was it? Because then I did not understand if it was the father, then it would make sense that when her husband leaves her, that would trigger the trauma to re, like when she would like. Resort back to being a child again and bringing back Fred, but the father leaving isn't the creation I, of Fred. I, a, I, go ahead. And Justin. I'm not like a psychiatrist, or, but yeah. I, that that bothered me a lot because it's like, and I don't know, like trauma doesn't have to be the same for to react sure. the same. I get that, but you would think in like a film like this, maybe that would be the line that they would go. But like, I, I guess it's just the 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 way she was parented by her mother. Um, and she was alone. She was an only child from what I see. So she had to create a friend, but it's just odd that she picked a British man when her father was a British man who's, you know, Nigel stood out from everyone else because there's not very many British people you know, around. <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm going to say, and if I'm going to try to put a psychological thing on this, that maybe what they were trying to say is, you know, kids tend to have imaginary friends and then they go away. The reason this one didn't, was because of the double whammy of her father leaving. So he stays as like that father figure, but also because the mother is demented. But so, at some point in time, but at some point in time, Fred leaves. Yeah. And that's the part that's very, and it would be that part would make more sense if they had mentioned there was more of a, like 
heavy medication that made that happen, but they don't really ever talk about that happening to her as much as a child. So that part is flimsy. I, I would easily say Fred was probably modeled because, I mean, most kids, I, I can't remember my imaginary friend now, but I guarantee you it probably looked like maybe one or two of my parents or a relative or something, or if it was a kid, somebody I knew. So that's probably why it just was British because she had a British dad. But it is it is interesting that they kind of, gloss over the fact that something would have had to have make him go away. And that's where I think the film isn't always a complete success in marrying its black humor and its uh, psychological message, because there is kind of a, a missing spot there. And I can't really pinpoint outside of maybe she eventually, since the dad was gone, she pushed another person that was close to her away. But again, I don't know. There's not enough here for that to really, at least on this visit, maybe if I keep rewatching it, which, like I said, I did get, uh, I got the 25th anniversary blue, which still has a good amount of those special features, but the Vincent is currently out of print. So once that turns up somewhere, I will probably upgrade to the Brad will sell you his copy, it sounds like. Yeah, $50. Okay, well, I might still take you up, and I can't believe you actually got the the Vincent of this, because that was a limited Yeah, I I don't, I I will say this, that there's enough within the dialogue that I think does bridge the gap between the flashbacks and the current because there, you know, the mother makes a lot of comments to the father about, well, you don't know what it is like raising a kid. So you, you get these hints that he is one of those absentee fathers and it doesn't seem, and I, I would be curious to go back and rewatch it. But every time they're together, like the father embraces her on the stairs when she's crying, like you can I think the father is the, well, I, I can't say that because he is gone. It seems like, so I can't say he's the good parent, but he's the one that seems the most caring. He is. And and I, I'm sure you could sit here and dissect this and say, well, the reason why Fred is the way that Fred is, is it's filling in the blanks or it's the reinforcement for the father when the father's not there. Right. It could, yeah. That so, could be it too. and I, I think what happens is when the mother sort of tapes up the box and says, this is over, et cetera she at that point is confined to this world of obeying her mother, listening to all the instructions, doing everything that she doesn't want to do, but what has been told that is good for her. And then when she finds Tim Matheson, she's basically finding somebody that is carrying over the mother's instructions because there, there's a couple of exchanges when um, Matheson comes back, right? After seeing her, the, the cocktail dress at the party and everything. And, um, Marsha Mason and Tim Matheson are having this exchange like they're on the same team, right? So it really feels like there was this um, repression that occurred. And then all of a sudden, when there's cracks in her life at a later life, she reg you know regresses back to this childhood imaginary friend and brings him back. Mm -hmm. And again, you, you're talking about a mainstream film. I get it. That's going to try and tackle these things, but do it at such a level that still maintains that entertainment factor, especially when you're merging like the hijink comedy, you can only take it so far. And so a lot of times your, your screenwriting is, is you're, you're relying on two or three sentences to maybe try and answer those questions that you and Justin are bringing up. Maybe it doesn't do a great job. I don't I, know. I'll borrow this, this, this phrase from Justin. It's doing a lot of the heavy lifting. <laughs> yeah i mean and, and also why is this movie so super horny this is like one of the horniest <laughs> films i've ever seen in my life 
Oh, who knows? Like, I mean, it'd be great to bring a psychologist on here and tell us yeah, like, okay. I mean, I wonder if like, if there's like the molestation. But yeah. That, I mean, it could be, it. I mean, even with her, you mentioned how she's almost childlike. I mean, where that would have happened, maybe her actual like childhood when she hit puberty, maybe it was more twisted because of what had happened with her family. I, so I don't think maybe that's it's catching there. up. I don't think yeah. it is, but I just, I don't want to maybe twist. It wasn't even the best word, but like just not having that same, or maybe it's just humor. That could be it too. Maybe it just, yeah, it was just, a product I, of its time. And it just wanted I think to there, also infuse that jokes in there. Yeah. I think there are, I, I think there are two things it's addressing. It is direct addressing sort of that, that parental abuse that's clear with the relationship. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing with her husband, it is sort of addressing this, you, you, you know, today we call it gaslighting, but it's being in this relationship where you're being manipulated over and over again um, for this person's gains and, and not yours. Right. So, uh, I, I, I know you read the behind the scenes stuff about the director. I don't know how much of that translates into this. I just pick up on those two things based on your, your two main, uh, you know, um, antagonists within the film. And, and again, I, I do think it's kind of, um, rough around the edges in some parts of it. They don't do a lot with the Carrie Fisher stuff. And then when, when she is there, uh, I, I don't know if it goes anywhere outside of it's another moment for her to have like Fred hijinks. Uh, and, and there's a payoff at the end where, you know, all this bad stuff happened actually was good. Uh, and, and they benefit from it, but I'm I, sorry that the insurance is not going to pay out that much on a boat, a houseboat. <laughs> like there, it's already a huge liability. Your policy would have to be ridiculous. I'm sorry. I'm sure I mean, it was. It was the, it was <laughs> the nineties, man. Yeah. You know, we were just insuring everything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's I, I still oh, your houseboat drowned. Who could have ever seen that happen? <laughs> and and I'll, I'll say this, even the even the moments that Carrie Fisher is in there, you you remember why you really like Carrie Fisher, because yeah, even even the uh, the exchange or the dialogue where, you know, Phoebe Gates is like, oh, he goes, he, he's he goes, he's an, she says he's an animal. And Phoebe Cates is like, oh, he goes all night. And Carrie Fisher's like, no, he shits in the corner. <laughs> he like paws at it or something. <laughs> Uh, and I think yeah, on the Blu-ray, they talk about Carrie Fisher rewriting some of her dialogue because as she wrote it or read it, she's like, now nah, I want to say this. So you get those Carrie Fisher dialogue moments within the film. I, I wish she was in a little bit more, but then again, it would take away from the Phoebe and, and Rick uh, performances, which I think are really good in this. And I was going to ask if she would have rewritten anything here. Cause I know this is around the time she started doing script doctoring. So I wasn't sure yeah. if like, that's also just, maybe she started doing that and came onto the project, but it's interesting to see that she was already on the project and was kind of already infusing that. And she I think was it considered for the Phoebe part, but they thought she was too old. So they, they slotted her into this other one. And like I said, she didn't rewrite any of the script outside of um, anecdotally her line. She didn't, she didn't add any other scenes or anything else. She just looked at her lines and was like, well, I'd rather, I'd rather say this instead, which uh, I don't think the screenwriters like, but still made in the final cut. Yeah. I will say I laughed more at stuff like that now. Cause I wouldn't have gotten that as a kid. I would have just, you know, glossed over those scenes, but some of that stuff now I'm like, okay, this, some of the adult stuff's actually really funny. It, it should have been funny. Dark. I, when I saw this in the theaters, I should have picked up on more of that, but I think I was just so aggravated. Um, because again, if you were there for the marketing and then you go into the theaters, what you saw versus what you got from a marketing perspective mm -hmm. didn't match up. And I think that frustration took me out of the film right after the first 15 or 20 minutes. So uh, now I don't know what it is. And again, I understand why it has its cold status, but I, I really, 
I really enjoyed this view of it, which shocked me, shocked me. Yeah, I'm sitting here kicking myself like, why didn't I just watch it at the beginning of the week? Because I would have loved to watch it again with the audio commentary. Brad shaking You live and learn. I know. Well, I mean, Brad, is there, you're to the point now, and um, I've, I've always been curious about this. You, you have life events. So there's either deaths in the family or you have kids or anything else. Have there been those films that you've watched and you go, man, I, I just really didn't like it. But then the life event happens, you go back and stumble across it. And all of a sudden you're like, what was I missing? And now I love that film. Um, that's a hard question. I haven't really thought about that before. A lot of <laughs> like, I'll watch like the lion King with my son, uh, the cartoon and, you know, seeing the father die and the son become, you know, like a, like a, you know, the King himself or even black Panther stuff like the, where the son kind of replaces the father always gets me. Um, but no, I haven't really, Trying to think. Wow. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. What was to it about Solar Baby? No, I'm just. What was it about <laughs> Solar, <laughs> Solar Baby? <laughs> uh, Miami <laughs> Connection really just got me right yeah, here. Yeah. Well, the guy is looking for his father. So yeah, I was um, gonna say that does have some emotional beats. Uh, you know, I I, I don't want to sound like a jackass, but like I, I I tell people all the time I've been really lucky with stuff, and I I've had a pretty trauma free life. Um, I keep telling people. Like, I feel like my life is just kicking those events down, down the road. And at some point in time, it's going to come to fruition. Um, but, you know, right now, like, I feel, I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't have a whole lot of this baggage. I don't want to say baggage. I, don't, I just don't have a whole lot of those experiences to really kind of lean on. Um, luckily so. Like, I feel fortunate for it. But I just, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't. Like, and this might be one of the reasons why this film doesn't resonate with me because I don't have sort of these experiences yet. Yeah, it, it could be. And it, and I would be curious, like I said, if somebody, well, I mean, we know with you just saying, Hey, there's nothing that I take away from this on a personal level that it speaks to me. And therefore, if you're just judging it on its most basic storytelling t- level, may, maybe it doesn't do anything. If you don't pick up on the nuances or you don't resonate with any of the imagery um, even those lines, like I said, I, I still think about that line about tearing things down to make it better. Uh, looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, I know all the places in my life where I had to do that. And that was such, such a hard lesson because you think you can fix everything and you, you can add something to it, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you're like, man, I just got to tear it down and start over. That's yeah. always, that's always the realization as a, a young person. When, when you figure that out and you have to do it, man, that's, that's an eye opener, but any any other final thoughts on this? Uh, the only other thing is to go back to the the scene where they meet all of the other imaginary friends, and I did like the touch that she could only see Fred. Now, seeing it as an adult, I'm like, is this inspired by Clive Barker? Because I like thought of Nightbreed the whole time with these weird, like the Velcro <laughs> Fred. Oh, Velcro guy freaked me out. Velcro head, yeah. Velcro. I'm like, this kind of just feels like a Hellraiser Nightbreed. Like, that's why I was like, this is a dark comedy 100%. Like, that scene confirmed it for me that this is like some weird, twisted uh, variation on what you would expect from a almost a children's comedy. But yeah, I mean, that's the only other thing. It, I'm, I really can't wait till the Blu ray comes in to check out even because there are some of those special features are on this 25th anniversary set that's an import. 
So I don't know if it's the same one. <laughs> I mean, Brad's I'm holding it up. <laughs> Brad, I might still. If this one doesn't have, don't, don't send me. I will send it to you. You can have it. Okay. All right. Because I was going to consider it a gift for coming on our show. Oh, well, thank you. Because I don't know how much is on here, but I, I was always worried about revisiting this, and I took a different experience away from this revisit if i was looking at it as just a comedy i probably would have came away from going like well it doesn't hold up but i still laughed a bit but i i did not expect it to get as deep as it did or even and i'm glad it wasn't just me because i was like well is this just me putting me this on it because like you said troy i'm bringing things that i would have gone through the past you know 25 years or so since i watched this religiously as a kid you know <laughs> And I am, but I think some of that is purposeful. Yeah, we have we have we have those films we we gravitated to as a kid. I mean, Brad's got solar babies, so that might explain a lot. But um, <laughs> I, I want to know what the film was that just made you hate uh, Italian films all in general, Brad. <laughs> like bad mm. bad plate of spaghettios, and then watch the wrong Italian film, and you're like, ah, I'm done with this country. Maybe it was the maybe it was the original Super Mario Brothers movie. Oh, yeah, maybe. okay. All right. <laughs> I will it. say some of the worst compositing I've ever seen in a film is in Drop Dead Fred. <laughs> oh, oh boy. the special yeah. effects didn't. Mm. Yeah, they yeah. Did. I didn't expect them to, but even then I was like, ooh, some of this is really rough. Like him bouncing around too. Did oh, good. That's no, the 90s, I, man. They, they hadn't yeah. figured it out. So many nope. harsh white lines around people. Yeah. So I did kind of like how that final sequence did feel like a rejected scene from a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. Like that whole house. Oh, Dream like, Warriors. Like, hey, yeah, Dream Warriors. No, that, that was cool. All right. I'm going to start with you, Justin, our guest. Uh, we had a lively discussion over 91's Drop Dead Fred. If you have to pass a final verdict on this thing, is it a bomb? It is not a bomb. It is still not quite sure what it is, but a bomb it is not. Okay. Brad, where do you land on this one? Yeah, I, I don't know what this movie is, but I can tell you one thing it is. It is a bomb. Oh, boy. Okay. I'm siding with Justin, surprisingly. If you had told me yesterday where I was going to land on this, I'd be like, dude, it's going to be a bomb, and uh, I'm going to be really angry that I had to watch it. So it shocked me. It it was just like that moment when we saw that Larry Fishburne film, Biker Boys. Oh, yeah. You <laughs> Which I did that. Uh, I, I will tell if, if people have a hard time finding the DVD or Blu-ray, it is not easy to find. It is on Tubi as well. Yes, oh, that is how great. I revisited it for this earlier today. Um, since I knew you guys were covering it and I haven't watched it in a while, I was like, well, where is it? Do I have to dig online? Because I don't own this on Blue. Uh, surprisingly, I forgot to get it when it came out. So that was... How, how was the print on Tubi? Not bad. It was, okay. I mean, I would say it's probably what DVD, maybe. I don't think it was bl the, the blue, blue looked great. I have, yeah, I, I was no surprised idea. how good. Yeah. The blue I, I want to say it was the DVD. It didn't look bad, but it, you know, the vinegar syndrome is the 2K uh, restoration. Restoration, yeah. Yeah. So where's it looks where's my good. 4K? Where's my 4K? Oh, to see that, I think that's a little ridiculous. <laughs> if you're going to do a 4K, this is not the film. I got I got another list of films you can work yeah. on. Well, like 10 years once everything else has a 4K, then we can go back to this. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Brad, listener feedback. We got a few things. You want me to read them? Uh, yes. All right. First one's from Zoe. He's our good friend over at the Backlook Cinema Podcast. He's been doing a lot of research, so I noticed when he's publishing something, he goes down his own little rabbit hole and uh, starts pulling out other films. And uh, what I love about it is he'll send something over and go, hey, I'm doing research for this, but did you know about this film? It may have bombed. So here we go. Don't know if this has been sent by anyone, but I've come across The Guardian in my research for The Fugitive. Both are directed by Andrew Davis. He hasn't directed a film since 2006. I don't know anything about The Guardian except that it stars Kevin Costner, and I think it's about the Coast Guard. Anyway, give that a look-see. So, 
Anybody oh, seen yeah, the Guardian? Oh yeah, that's a Andrew Davis film. Okay, we need to add that to the list. I I looked at the trailer and I'm kind of interested. No, no, it's Ashton Kutcher. Oh, it's Ashton Kutcher in that movie. Yeah, it's him and uh, Dennis Quaid. Was it? Are you sure? I don't know. Okay. Okay. Maybe. I I remember seeing it when it came out on video, but I haven't thought about it since. <laughs> until that feedback. All right, we'll we'll check this one out. Uh, this one's from Michael. I, I <laughs> this. This, this one's great. I, I'm, I'm excited to read this email. So here we go. Why do we watch bad films? Despite the reviews and talk of mouth, we still watch them. And despite how bad some are, they become a guilty pleasure. Take Superman 4, for example. It's a complete mess, but I still enjoy it because I think its heart was in the right place. Uh, spoiler alert, Michael. We're doing Superman 4 coming up here soon. Uh, which brings me to King Kong Lives, in which your coverage of the film reduced me to a laughing wreck of a man. Everyone in this film plays it straight throughout, despite the mind-boggling plot. I was baffled how little blood there was during the heart transplant, never mind the driest birth of baby Kong during the emotional finale. Who cares, though? It's bonkers, barmy nonsense. But may I draw your attention to 1976's Queen Kong, a British-German production in which a film crew travels to Africa. The lead actor... Ray Fay finds himself pursued by the love-struck Queen Kong in this comedy, which was Dino De Laurentiis blocked the release of the film in the United Kingdom, although it was shown in Italy and Germany. It has a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, so take that as a warning if you are brave enough to watch it. Take care, Michael. You're smiling, Justin. Have you seen Queen Kong? No, but I I want to now <laughs> because he wants to ask, why do we watch bad movies? I don't know what it is about me. Like I said, maybe it's because I grew up loving Drop Dead Fred and Howard the Duck, uh, even though I will say Howard the Duck is not a bad movie. But uh, there's a curiosity to bad movies that brings a certain type of, I don't want to say pleasure, but a lore that you don't get from something that's good. Like it's so more fascinating to me to to see something and i haven't listened to your laquisha review yet because i'm gonna be uh doing a watch party of that soon i had it planned but that's one i was always curious about because i'm like coming out with that nowadays like what's what's the mindset behind this like going to be and it's i think that's why we're just drawn to bad films because you know like most bad movies it still took time and care especially you know before the advent of phones having cameras on them we had to actually rent cam you know film like what went wrong <laughs> like, and it's just it's a much more fascination trying to see that than just why is a film great like i just i have more of a perverse pleasure in watching the really weird like again i'm the type of person and when i heard about the ginger dead man movies i was like yeah i gotta see them like immediately <laughs> just okay. because a movie about a killer cookie <laughs> Well, Brad, Queen Kong, it, you, have you even heard about this? I watched the trailer today, and oh my God, I must own this thing. <clears throat> God damn it. <laughs> Why? What? No? Uh, just, this is such a bad idea. People send us this stuff all the time now, and it's like, this is my life. I yeah. watch terrible, terrible films now. Well, it, it might have to make up on Breaking Brad. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think, Brad, it's time before we talk about next week, we uh, we debut our new purchase. What do you think? Yes, we do. Skynet is okay. coming. So Brad and I, we work in analytics uh, for a living. And one of the things that uh, we play with now 
is artificial intelligence. When you're crunching numbers, AI is fantastic. So we thought, hey, let's let's invest in the future of the podcast. And uh, we went and bought a robot. So it's officially called Robo Reviewer 1000. And what Brad and I do is behind the scenes, we actually feed data into it. And then it comes back with its own review after, you know, taking all of the information that's fed into it in terms of critical reviews, how did it the box office, some of the, the well, just the details of the, the filmmaking process and, and even whether or not, you know, it's a good film or not. So we, we thought we would try it out and debut with this week's film. So, um, Brad, you, you want to, let me see. It's, I don't, is it working? There it goes. You hear it? No. Okay. Well, it's let, let's see let's see what happens. So this is this is its take on Drop Dead Fred from 1991. Well, hello darlings. This is Joan Crawford coming at you with my thoughts on the film Drop Dead Fred. Let me tell you, this movie had me all sorts of confused. Is it a comedy? A drama? A horror? I couldn't quite figure it out. The film follows the story of a young woman named Elizabeth whose life is turned upside down when her childhood imaginary friend, Drop Dead Fred, returns to wreak havoc on her already chaotic adult life. The concept is definitely unique, but the execution leaves something to be desired. While the film has some funny moments, it also has some disturbing and uncomfortable ones. The character of Drop Dead Fred himself is quite annoying and grating, and I found myself wondering why Elizabeth didn't just get rid of him for good. Overall, I would say that Drop Dead Fred is a bit of a mixed bag. It has its moments, but it also has its flaws. If you're looking for a lighthearted comedy, you might enjoy it. But if you're expecting a cohesive and well-plotted film, you might want to look elsewhere. In conclusion, I'd say that Drop Dead Fred is a film that's best watched with an open mind and a sense of humor. Just don't expect too much from it, darlings. Until next time, keep shining. Uh, what? So hold That's on. That's kind of eerie. Did did it say Joan Crawford? Why yeah, Joan I Crawford? I I wrote it in the uh, uh, the uh, using Joan Crawford as inspiration. Wait, so you pick one of the most notorious like bad moms in mm-hmm. cinema history <laughs> to write a review on Drop what? Dead Fred. Yeah, that was on purpose, Troy. That so that wasn't just no more wire that wasn't hangers. the whole oh. chat. So okay, oh. just make it sure because I didn't want AI to come back and go. Well, if you're doing a film about Drop Dead Fred, it would obviously be seen by Joan Crawford. You you said Joan Crawford. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah using Joan Crawford oh. as inspiration. Okay, so it's not as eerie now because that was freaking me out from this <laughs> outset. It's kind of freaking me out. So this this was AI generated, correct? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, spot on. Spot on review. Well, I look so far. This investment's pretty good. Um, I can't wait to use it on next week's pick. It's it's my pick. We're doing we're doing something special for episode one fifty. Brad, do you, do you want to announce it? I do. I do. So, one of my favorite comedians of all time is Mister Andrew Dice Clay. And in nineteen ninety, he started a film. It was an action film. It was a comedy film. It was a mystery film. It was the adventures of Ford Fairlane. Oh boy. Yeah. I cannot wait. 
I can't wait either. I, I'm so excited. Say it again. Yeah, no, there we go. Yeah, it's gonna be like two hours of that. I have so many of those next week. I'm like, I'm not even gonna do mine just because you guys are gonna get overloaded. Yeah, my ears week. are gonna hurt. So <laughs> here's here's the other thing. I got so excited about this that there was one Andrew Dice Clay film I've never seen. Uh and I tracked it down uh from Germany, I think, on a special edition Blu-ray. This week, I'm also going to watch Brain Smasher, a love story oh, with him. You've never seen Hatcher. it before? I've never oh, seen that it. That fun. I think I still have the VHS I found at a thrift store like a decade ago. Up yeah, in one of these it's boxes. the only of his filmography I just I haven't caught. So I thought, well, if we're going to do Fort Fairlane, then I'm definitely going to knock that one off my list. So I'm, I may share uh, my thoughts on that. Brad, if you if you want to play along, too. Fine. Oh, I, yes, I will watch that again. OK, we'll watch Brain Smasher. Um, Justin. What's going on at Watch Skip Plus? All right. Well, uh, as of recording on this, the recent episode that dropped is on the Super Mario Brothers movie. So nice that we brought up the 93 movie uh, and we do briefly discuss that film. And uh, Troy, I might have sent you uh, a gift calling you a nerd on our Dungeons and Dragon episodes. Well, I get to be the nerd on the Super Mario Brothers <laughs> movie review. Uh, we did record and by the a time gelatinous this- cube, please. <laughs> gelatinous cube. <laughs> gelatinous cube. For 200 Strangely Alex. enough, also appears in it. No. Uh, <laughs> um, we did record an episode, as you alluded to, Troy, on Renfield. So by the time this episode airs, that should be coming out within a few days. And our good friend, Sammy from the Gentleman's Guide, decided to join us since he did end up seeing that uh and that actually kind of pairs nicely with this just on when it comes down to certain characters and how you react to them so uh yeah so we've got that going on you go to anchor.fm backslash watch hyphen skip and you will find all of our episodes we are on i think the 35th episode just dropped we're, we're getting up there oh, now. nice um, like I said, we did just recently have Troy on. Brad has been on a few occasions for Glass mm-hmm. Onion and All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, we are on all of your platforms, your Spotify's, your Apple, which we found out is where most of our listeners come from. So thank you all for that. Awesome. Well, who else should they listen to, Brad? I think we got a, a litany of friends out there. Yeah, that's Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Skip Plus. The VHS Files podcast, Night of the Living podcast, who they will be coming up on the next episode of Breaking Brad with us. So that's BC Butcher, right? Yeah. yeah. For April. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, we got to record that soon. Uh, anyway, uh, the Backlook Cinema podcast with Zoe and the Mixtape podcast. Yes. So go check all those out. Definitely go check out Night of Living podcast this month because while we dropped King Kong Lives, they did Kong Skull Island. All month, they're just doing uh, monster films. Why, why, why did they drop it? Why Why did they drop it? Why? Why? Because it's April. Oh. <laughs> we're, still carrying, we're carrying okay, that joke that. over. Okay. That's... Yeah, you'll be saying that when, we, when I force you to watch Queen Kong. Oh, I don't, but probably not for April. April. Next April. Next yes. April. You get a whole year. Oh, well, if if we do make it a theme next month, then that's for I feel like we're becoming like the monkey review podcast or something. Um, we do a lot of monkey films. I noticed. We do monkey around. <laughs> Sorry, God <damn> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you went there. Uh, what else, Brad? Leave a review for us at yeah. some point. Right. Yeah. If you're, especially if you're one of our new listeners that had picked up over the last like two weeks, um, yeah, leave us a review. We would love that. Um, wherever you're listening, please, there please. You go. No, I'm not going to beg. Um, yeah. And if you want to reach out to us, 
That is notabombpod at gmail.com. You can go to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or go to Not A Bomb Podcast and hit the Contact Us button. Leave suggestions, leave review, leave a you know comment or whatever, and we will uh, add your film to the list. Ever-growing list, Troy. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, we get some gems like Queen Kong. Come on. Uh, I don't know. I don't know who's going to top that one. Uh, Justin, thank you so much, man. I know this is sort of last minute and we were kind of trying to jockey to get you on here, but I'm glad, uh, your plans ended early and you could spend some time talking yeah. about this film. I'm glad too. Cause I knew when you guys were covering this, I was like, yeah, I want to come on. Then I realized, Oh, I already made plans. So selfishly, I was actually kind of happy they ended early. Cause this, this is a film that is very special to me. And I believe I mentioned to you guys in the past when other listeners started recommending and like, oh, yeah, I guess that would have been a bomb. And yeah, that's one that I strangely grew up with. That's awesome. And I do want to give a quick shout out right before we sign off our good friend, Randy Katzen. Uh, oh, yes, this guy, he, he just celebrated his birthday. Um, I had the pleasure of kind of spending the day with him on his birthday. He I, here's this is Randy in a nutshell. You want to do something for Randy and spoil him just all day, right? But what ends up happening is this guy spoils you. He is the most giving person that I've probably ever met. And he introduced all of us to this film called Freaked that stars Alex Winter, was directed by Alex Winter, somebody else. I got to tell you, and, and Brad, I know you and I have talked already. We're going to talk about this film. It is insane. Uh, and I, thank you, Randy. Thank you so much. As much as we talk about, you know, folks like Sammy and, and Will from GGTMC and NOTLP that, you know, inspire this podcast, really it comes down to people like Randy who are constantly feeding us all of these really interesting films. Um, and just out of the kindness of his heart doing so much for us. And, uh, I, I was super excited to celebrate his birthday and I cannot wait to just, um, just introduce everybody to freaked. Uh, it's a little hard to find, but Brad and I are working through that right now. Yep. Uh, yep. I will say this. If anyone is near the Mahoning drive-in in Lehigh, Pennsylvania at the end of April, the final Sunday in April, they're showing freaked on 35 millimeter. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, halfway to Halloween. And Randy was the one, this actually got brought up on watch get plus. Cause, uh, Sammy brought it up. Randy was the one that introduced me to freaked, uh, many years ago and i fell in love with it instantly it is so funny and so bizarre it hits every note yeah absolutely it does so but what is what are you playing oh i was i was watching the trailer again because he had sent it to me and it just it boggles my mind oh okay i actually brandy even gave me a copy of the dvd one of the ones he had so that's sweet i picked it up at a at a uh not not a yard sale oh it was a flea market that's where i got it yeah picked up a flea market and randy's like I asked him, I was like, you ever heard this film? He's like, oh my God, that's like one of his favorite films. So we watched it on his birthday. That and American American Rickshaw, which was, oh boy, that was that was a lot of fun. But man, what a weird film. Mitch Gaylord. We could just, we could just do a whole month on Mitch Gaylord films. Mitch uh, Gaylord May? Mitch May? Mitch May? Ooh, God damn you, Justin. <laughs> I love alliteration. I really do. That's too good. It's too good not to do it. That's true. Uh, Brad, next I, May. We have to do that. Next May. Yeah, we're getting next year playing. Um, okay. Anything else? We good? Housekeeping done? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thank you for stopping by and uh, listening to our thoughts on Drop Dead Fred. 
come back here next week for two hours of Brad just doing Andrew Dice Clay impersonations <laughs> and us trying to get through just talking about the film without it degrading into just some stupid humor. It's going to be a lot of fun, uh, but we'll catch you then. Have a great week. Don't lose your head. <laughs>